1972 novel Invisible Cities by author Italo Calvino, the explorer Marco Polo tells the great Kublai Khan, You take delight not in a city's seven or seventy wonders, but in the answer it gives to a question of yours. Now that we are living in an age of sensor-rich urban environments generating massive amounts of data, Calvino's words have a strange touch of prophecy to them. Hello, I'm your host, Paul Teese, and in this episode of If When, I discuss the present state and near future of connected communities with Lonnie Ingram, the recent president and CEO of Verizon's Smart Communities program, and Dr. Rick Robinson, director of Smart Places, Digital Infrastructure, and Telecommunications for Jacobs. In the discussion that follows, we discuss questions such as, what are the most pressing problems that can be solved by a city evolving into a connected community? What are the public and private sector roles in supporting such communities? And who are some of the cities that are leading the way in terms of leveraging technology and best practices? Well, Lonnie and Rick, thank you both for joining me today. Uh, this, is, this is a great topic. And obviously, as we kind of start looking post-COVID and, and how we're going to have to uh, contend with changes in our approach to communities going forward, and also with the proliferation of all the uh, connected devices and whatnot, you know, it just seemed like a, a really timely discussion to have with both of you. So I, I thank you both joining, uh, joining me today to talk about connected communities. So to kick us off, uh, I'm gonna, uh, first question is going to be for Lonnie. And uh, the, the question is, what are the hallmarks of a truly connected community? Yeah, well, thank you for inviting me into the podcast. I always love talking about connected communities. And, you know, I think the hallmarks of a truly connected community, first of all, I think unique and different by community, uh, because every city is very different in their problems that they're trying to address, etc. But if I were to put kind of a, a holistic goal out there of what we would be shooting for, there are five main areas that I think are important. Inclusivity, is critical, um, being able to make sure that we involve everybody in the community. Uh, many times, a lot of the connected community activities might hit only um, certain areas of the community, and that leaves a bigger and bigger gap in the digital divide. So I think inclusivity is, is really number one on my list. Not only just sustainability, but also regenerative cities. Um, in taking the, the environment into consideration, I think is a real hallmark for a connected community, being able to be resilient, being able to have the data to properly react to natural disasters and other kinds of activity in cities on a regular basis. Uh, that word resilient is used quite often, and it's, I think, incredibly important um, success milestone um, of a connected city. Um, and then the last two are really around being safe and being healthy. Um, uh, you know, safety, we talk about that a lot when it comes to public safety and security, uh, being able to um, just ensure that we are better and better at keeping our communities, you know, safe in, in, in every activity that they do, whether at home or, or as they uh, uh, travel and, and as they work. And then healthy, boy, certainly we've... <laughs> seen a lot of, of uh, recent discussions on uh, health abilities, and I think this has actually given a, a whole new meaning to the connected community beyond the traditional health um, initiatives that were there, which were primarily around 
uh, the data gathering, you know, kind of maybe relooking at the way we uh, we provide healthcare, et cetera. Now this health concern is even the way we interact with one another, um, you know, being able to understand contact tracing, et cetera. All of that is really also part of a more connected city and more connected community we have, the better we would be at those things. So those are my top five homework. Mm, that's a, that's a worthy list, and uh, it's that's fantastic. I um, you know, so I, I, I was thinking, in terms of a connected community, and you ha- have you achieve those things, and you listed some of the benefits. But uh, obviously, technology is advancing across the globe, and um, you know, so basically everywhere we go, I, I think, like for instance, uh, quote a data point, I believe. Uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 to 85% of all adults on earth have access to a smartphone either now or they will within the next five years, right? So technology is just, it's ubiquitous. And so the question, the follow-up here is, you know, what are the benefits of a connected community above and beyond what like an average modern day metropolis might already enjoy? Yeah, no, I, it was a it was a good question, and I, and I think you're right. You know, the the top five areas that I was just talking about are ones that we kind of hear a lot. We know there's a lot of active activity with that, but there's a lot of um, additional benefits that can happen with those same activities. So, if we talk about reduction in traffic. Uh, one of the benefits actually of COVID is, is being able to get from one place to another a lot faster. And one of the things we immediately see with that is changes in housing, um, changes in housing prices, changes in choices, um, uh, the ability to work remotely, traffic situations because of the way that they get out with smart city solutions. This actually has this additional above benefit to the normal things. So when you fix traffic, you actually really have a strong impact on housing. Um, you know, when people have to work in a metropolitan area and they can't travel really far away to get affordable housing, a lot of times that puts people in really precarious situations from a housing situation. So again, these are some of the above and beyond. You got also with, you know, interconnected health. Uh, again, when we talk about health, we start thinking uh, about managing the data and the holistic approach to it. And there's a, a lot of connectivity, um, uh, smart city solutions that are. But, you know, you start combining that with uh, what's happening in robotics and what's happening with um, some of the digital intelligence. We can really redefine how we manage elder care. You know, so with each of these solutions, you can kind of do that double click, um, so to speak, in the additional above and beyond. It's, um, you know, just one last one, all, all the, the whole concept of the green cities, obviously incredibly important. But again, thinking beyond that, what about regenerative cities? Um, uh, you know, that I think is an interesting concept. So we're not just thinking about sustainability with our natural resources, but we're also thinking about how do we actively change our behaviors to reduce consumption consumption, and also replenish resources that have been exceeded. Um, so, you know, kind of thinking, taking each one of these, once you've got data, ability to communicate with one another, once you've got the ability to communicate with your environment in a different level, mm-hmm. how do you take those initial solutions and then take it to the next level? Mm. 
And then Rick kind of pivoting on that a little bit, you know, uh, talking about how technology uh, empowers these connected communities and makes them possible. You know, what are the outcomes that, you know, from where you sit that you see are important to those communities? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a really important question, isn't it? Um, and I think, you know, it's so often important to, to understand the specific outcomes important to a particular place. I, I remember one conversation quite a long time ago I had with a, a UK city, a post-industrial city, um, and talking to them about the, the idea of traffic prediction and a project we'd been involved in where we predicted traffic and congestion an hour in advance with a high degree of accuracy. Um, and the response was, Rick, traffic congestion would be a nice problem to have. It would tell us that more people wanted to come into the city centre because the economy was doing well. Um, that's not what we need. We need help creating local jobs. So, so and I think it's really important to, to understand specific places. But now having said that, we, we've got a pretty good um, set of outcomes that have been convened around the world in the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And actually, you know, I, I find those are a pretty good template for understanding what people might want out of a connected place or just out of life in general, to be honest. Um, and I think the really interesting challenge is how to focus on delivering some of those outcomes um, to, to get a bit more specific you know if, if we're talking in the connected places context specifically um, then you know often what people want is pretty basic at a personal level that they just want their life to work well right mm-hmm. um, they want opportunities to do the things that matter to them and I think this comes up with a really interesting conceptual point you know in in the world of connected places or smart cities or whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. there's often a debate between you know are we looking for large-scale top-down initiatives that, that drive citywide solutions or are we looking to encourage smaller scale bottom-up creativity and innovation and often I I think actually what we really need is the successful marriage between the two Um, so small scale bottom-up creativity and innovation it happens all the time it's what anyone does when they're trying to to get on in life trying to start a business or do a little bit better at their their job or researching something creative for a school project or you know whatever it is that's it that's creativity I think the challenge lies in answering the question, how do we help digital technology enable that creativity to be more successful and have impact at greater scale? Um, There's an architect called Kelvin Campbell, who I I think framed this brilliantly when he created the the massive small movement, which I've always sort of uh, paraphrased as a question, which is what are the characteristics of urban environment and infrastructure that give rise to massive amounts of small scale innovation? That, for me, is a really interesting question. It touches on one of the things that that Lani mentioned, which is inclusivity. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, if if I look at one of the things that technology will make happen over the next 10 or 20 years, and it's happening already, is automation of things that are currently part of people's jobs, right? So, um, you know, I used to um, be a consultant who designed large-scale web computing architectures for things like electronic banking and and e-commerce. You don't really need to pay consultants to do that for you anymore because you can rent it off the cloud that whole thing has been automated literally and the same thing will happen and is happening to lots of other professions so so the next question for us is how can we make sure that as many people as uh, as possible have the opportunity to have a successful career given how many things are automated mm-hmm. and that comes down to things like addressing the digital divide in, in all of its um all of its senses so you know, how do we make sure there's high quality connectivity 
everywhere in a city in a region in a country not just in the bits that are already the wealthiest and can afford to pay the highest subscription fees um, how do we make sure that everyone's got a, a device to access that connectivity with you know we wouldn't dream of building a house without water pipes and taps how about houses that always have wires and at least a basic form of access device you, you mentioned you know covid this, that situation at the start of the podcast and obviously this is something that covid has massively exacerbated you know that the people with most need of education social care healthcare services are precisely the people least likely to have good connectivity and the number of devices they need for everyone in the home to be able to use it at once so, so you know those for me are, are quite fundamental basic things but we absolutely have to get them, them right and it goes into education and schooling as well mm-hmm. um, we, we had a local university wanted to run a project at my son's primary school recently and I was, I was gobsmacked when I heard about it they wanted to put mixed reality demonstrations in the kids playground so that these primary school kids could interact with hybrid physical digital creations and I thought that's a ridiculous thing to do in a primary school and then I thought hang on no it's exactly what we should be doing in primary school because the one thing I could predict about the jobs these kids are going to be trying to to secure in 15 20 years time is then involved working with artificial um, intelligence in mixed reality environments mm-hmm. and the schools at the moment don't have the resources to, to provide that sort of that sort of experience at least not all schools so mm-hmm. you know I, I think there's a lot of outcomes that communities are interested in in this agenda Lani touched on a number of them really well in her summary of those first five things I think challenge for me is how we focused investment on achieving them because obviously the majority of investment I see going into digital services in cities is commercial investment seeking a commercial return um, you know that's the engine of the economy and I'm not going to criticize it but it's not the same thing mm-hmm. as achieving quality of opportunity of crossing the digital divide so we need to figure out how to better align those two different forces yeah it's interesting i think that as we see automation disrupt the workforce you know obviously a lot of employers are, are putting a lot of emphasis on things like upskilling and uptraining their their workforce there's a big impetus on stem activities and trying to train up you know future generations but i also suspect there's going to be a push where uh, the devices and technologies themselves are going to have to uh, lend themselves to be more economically uh, feasible or egalitarian perhaps because, you know, just like you, you're both kind of alluding to, there has to be that access to the technology in order for people to be able to adopt it easily and, and kind of overcome that, that learning curve. And, you know, employers and those who have a vested interest in, in a future skilled workforce are, are going to have, you know, probably see that the writing on the wall, they're going to have to try to help make that, that technology more affordable across the board. You know, it, it's an investment, you know, let's say in the workforce of the future. Lonnie. So, you know, kind of continuing on this riff on the, on kind of the challenges ahead of us and, and where, you know, connected communities can kind of come in and be a benefit what do you see are the most pressing problems that could be solved by a city evolving into a connected community? One of the things that I was noticing, uh, I was mentioning to you earlier, Paul, my daughter has just started with um, Teach for America and uh, of 
hearing about what she's doing there because this is really addressing the issue of not having connectivity to all parts of a city. And especially when you start looking at communities that don't have broadband in the home, how are they going to do this in the age of COVID? And what was really interesting in the school is in is, uh, you know, throughout the summer, they really did a, a strong focus on being able to ensure that all of those students had computers, had the ability to have broadband, um, whether it was, if it was not in their home, that it was in an area that was safe that they could go to. These are solutions that they had to think about primarily in the education district that might not have been top of mind. It was an issue that was out there. Maybe the service providers will solve it. Maybe government will solve it. Maybe somebody else will solve it. And all of a sudden it became something they needed to solve. And, and I think that that is a, an interesting approach going forward. You know, re, almost it gives us an opportunity to redefine the way that we operate. Um, it, it, it gives us a chance to redefine the way that government interacts with its constituents looking at metrics maybe even very differently. Um, you know, how do we think about, um, man? you know how the, that saying is, what is not managed does not get done, right? The old TQM methodology dating, right? But um, <laughs> that I think is actually um, really relevant for this mm -hmm. because with connected communities, you get a different set that was not available in the past. You get a different way of communicating with um, the people in the community to understand what their needs are and whether or not they're getting met in a way that necessarily wasn't existing. Um, mm -hmm. And so this allows us to be able to reset what our goals are. Um, and, and ensure that we've got the rights that are providing the right results to um, solving pressing problems. I think in the long run, really move forward towards real solutions that people can tangibly touch and feel. Mm -hmm. And to, the more we do that, I think the more the community will want to get engaged with it. Um, right now, there's a combination of interest and fear. Um, you know, with any of the new technologies. Yes, I'm really interested in it, but am I going to have a privacy issue? Is my data going to be compromised? Is, um, you know, is this going to be for me? Think about 5G solutions. You know, the reality is, is it's, it's, it's going to be a probably a very positive thing, but we've got to ensure that we're doing it right and we're involving the community to be a part of this. Um, and I do think that that is actually one of the key things that cities can do right now in looking at each one of these solutions is figure out how to make it tangible, impactful, mm -hmm. start with a small result, but it has a positive impact because success breeds success. Yeah, oh, yeah, no, I, I think so. And, and then Rick kind of taking a look at some of who some of the key players are in, um, in this development of uh, connected communities, uh, a couple of questions here for you. The first one is, what are the public and private sector roles in supporting connected communities? Yeah, so I, for me, that's a really key question. I've spent a lot of my career at the boundary of those two sectors, most often working in the private sector, serving public sector clients. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it all comes back to outcomes and motivations again. You know, again, if I use the UN Sustainable Development Goals as a pretty good proxy for you know, what, what sort of answer do you get when you ask a community of people what do they want out of life? That's a pretty good 
proxy for that. Um, then the question becomes, in what circumstances do we see money being spent on achieving those goals? Directly, it's usually by the public sector. Um, so, you know, public sector is the custodian of communities at various levels. It's responsible for things like economic growth, social mobility, sustainability, etc. Mm-hmm. However, public sector funds are pretty limited. And we've also just had the public sector bail the global economy out of the biggest crisis in living memory. Um, it's going to be constrained for a little while, we should expect. So then we need to look at private sector. Um, you know, why does private sector invest money? Well, to stay within the law and to make a profit. It's pretty much as simple as that. Now, those two things are not the same thing as I referred to previously. So I spend a lot of my time looking at the question, how can we incentivize private sector investment and innovation to Mm. achieve the UN Sustainable Development Goals or whatever the sort of local equivalent to that would be? And there's a lot of different ways, ways to do it. It's also arguable that at the moment we don't have those two things in alignment so you know we wouldn't have a digital divide if those two things were in alignment but we do have a digital divide i think it's also true to say that the digital services having the biggest impact on cities and communities at the moment are largely consumer services which i won't mention by name but you know we buy things through them we get food delivered through them they're how we find accommodation how we make travel choices etc and you don't have to look very far to find all sorts of externalities to do with those services where in fact you know they're creating great consumer convenience and a lot of us including me use them a lot but you know are they making traffic congestion in our cities better or worse are they solving the affordable housing crisis or are they contributing to it um, you know good example would be to to look at the impact of the digital economy on distribution of, of wealth something I first came across through the work of Andy McAfee and Eric Grinjolson at MIT um, and they've written pretty convincingly that you know platform um, economy the gig economy all of these things they're doing a lot of things but on the net they're driving an increase in inequality. A greater degree of the value created in the economy is Mm. going to the owners of capital platforms. A smaller proportion is going to labor providers. Um, And you see this in the sort of polarization of individual wealth and also the fact that um, the the sort of value of things like the um, US economy is now Mm. concentrated in a much, much smaller number of companies than it Mm. was 10 years ago or 30 years ago. Um, so, you know, there is evidence that we don't have these things successfully in alignment at the moment. So, you know, how could we get them in alignment? But there's lots of ways. You know, one of the ones that I've explored a lot through previous jobs is in outcome based procurement. If a local authority procures its highways maintenance services on the basis that congestion and pollution are minimised, you get a very different result than if you procure those services based on how many pounds will you, or dollars will you charge me to fix a pothole. You know, the, the the latter, unfortunately, is how most of the market works at the moment. And so that limits the amount of real innovation that we see. Having said that, of course, outcome-based contracts, public-private partnerships are extraordinarily difficult to get right. But I think we need to put a lot more effort into getting them right because they're a really powerful opportunity to, to align private sector investment and innovation capabilities with the outcomes we say we want as communities. Um, There are other ones as well. So the use of the planning framework around major developments is one that's really interesting right at the moment. So, you know, we're working on a number of schemes which represent um, hundreds of millions of 
pounds or dollars of private sector investment to regenerate large places or build them from scratch, now looking at their options for providing connectivity, for providing smart, sustainable infrastructure, for providing digital schools, public Wi-Fi, all of these things. That's a great opportunity. The final one I'll, I'll mention, and this is by no means intended to be an exhaustive list, but um, <laughs> I, I, I well remember... Um, goodness me more than 10 years ago me and a colleague um, at the tech company I worked at at the time having an idea that this new social media stuff um, could be used to create links between people um, who might then be able to share car journeys with each other so we thought great let's see if we can get this off the ground Uh, and we thought well we know how to do all the technology but what we don't know how to do is sell transport services to consumers so we're going to need another business partner and a colleague of ours said hey you should talk to this car rental company I did a great innovation workshop with them I think they'd love this idea. Well, car rental, but hang on, these people want to rent more cars. Surely, if we produce something that allows more people to use less cars, that will shrink their market. They can't possibly be interested in this. But we phoned them up and we talked to their global head of sales who said mm. when he had started his career 20 years ago, the biggest impact he could have on sustainable transport was persuade people to rent a car rather than buy one, because that way the cost of manufacturing it and commissioning it is spread across many more traveler miles uh, versus a private car which tends to sit unused for 99% of its lifetime and I remember thinking at the time wow what a reason to start a business and you know of course there are many many people in business who have that inspirational world-changing streak and can do some terrific good so you know those for me are the really interesting things to look at this this sector not how the technology works there's loads of technology so how can we figure out to put real weight behind it to change the world for the better yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting to see like what are the challenges that can be solved and how people are solving them. I remember, you know, one thing, this is a couple of years ago, but they were looking at reducing the carbon footprint from automobiles and all the automobiles that are on, on the roadway. And so you realize, and this, of course, is a pre-COVID world, but, you know, most people would commute to work. And then their car would sit in a parking lot for eight to 10 hours and then they would drive it home. And so there were discussions around the business model of what if you sublet your car? And so, you know, while you're at work, your car is, is being used and, you know, people are, are using your car for whatever reasons, you know, and then, so it becomes a profit model for you. Uh, and it also decreases like the need for more cars or car ownership, you know, and so shared, shared automotive services and stuff. So it's an innovative, it was an innovative idea that wasn't necessarily you know, incumbent upon like a, a lot of great technological investment. It was just kind of a different way of looking how we solve a problem. So Lonnie, turning to you, you, you know, you'd mentioned data privacy. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking about was the recent history of Sidewalk Labs in Toronto. And, you know, when I looked at that, I, it was a, a bold, a bold and ambitious plan, but there were elements in the community that were quite concerned, I guess, with data privacy issues. Let's just put it that way, uh, around citizen privacy and Quayside. So how do we solve for the challenge of appropriate data privacy in an IoT sensor-rich community? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's really interesting. I, I, I admired the Sidewalk Labs boldness of, of going so big and just having this vision is um, I think the challenge really came in 
getting the community involved in that discussion probably early enough to where they felt in more control. And I think that's where a lot of the challenges come in in many different cities, not just with Sidewalk Labs, but I, you know, in, in cities that I've worked in the, in the past, anytime that we have opportunity to do something new with technology, that initial concern of, wait a second, what's, what's going to happen to um, my privacy? My, is, you know, am I starting to lose something? And the, the biggest way that I've seen us getting through this is having a very strong focus on transparency around privacy management. So um, in today's world, there's a lot of discussions happening about privacy, but if me as a, as a citizen, me as an individual, I'm trying to figure out where is my data going and how do I manage that, it's not easy, it's not transparent. The way that a lot of privacy issues are dealt with are from the company level out as opposed to the citizen in. To the solutions if that makes sense and i think that is going to be a really interesting opportunity for us going forward of how to be able to relook at the transparency of privacy and you know getting rid of this concept that you know these solutions are all free but really it's not free they're paying with a a personal data payment so mm -hmm. to speak but but really that's how the financial aspect of it works mm -hmm. um you know you get this for free you can get these services for free but then we're going to leverage that data and we're going to be able to monetize something in a certain manner and that's how the process works mm -hmm. that's not necessarily as openly communicated to people as it should be and it's almost as though i'd, I'd love the point to where we could almost provide a choice get this for instead of free you can say with a personal data payment or a pay as opposed to just just having to uh, trust industry right, uh, which you know sometimes industry does and and, and sometimes mistakes are made. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't exactly have a popular formula on that yet. I think that the way that technology is going to have to go in the future is with some sort of a of a broader financial model and mm -hmm. transparency around that financial model around privacy. We tend to almost divorce the privacy issue from funding, but we can't really. Yeah. Um, uh, there, 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 there's, there's a lot of interconnection. Now, uh, of course, there are other privacy issues around camera usage and, and you know, personal information being out there. And in, in the U.S. right now, um, you know, there's a lot of benefits for things being recorded. Um, uh, people getting to see what's happening in communities and 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 reactions thereof. But then there's also, um, you know, concerns about, you know, is my privacy just gone? Um, uh, and and what is available for public use and what isn't? Um, uh, and so those are questions that I think we got to start more holistically with regulations and policies um, that again are not top down but are community involved you know get everybody together to try and make some of those policy decisions mm -hmm. um, and then roll them out in a consistent transparent manner i you know i think when you when you look at data privacy i mean it's it kind of comes down to uh, you nailed it you know it's you are the product 
right? Like people don't realize that they are the product. And so I, there are, I think you're starting to see, I believe, you know, greater pushes to monetize personal data, right? So it's like, it puts me back in control of my data. I'm not just, you know, hoping that the powers that be out there, you know, in terms of the corporations and organizations that are collecting my data and then like the government agencies that are ostensibly supposed to regulate that collection of data all have my best interest in heart and they're managing things and I can just go about my happy business without a care in the world, but that I need to be a player at the table, you know, in terms of my own data and, you know, how that gets monetized, how that gets used and how I'm remunerated for you collecting data on me, you know, as I interact in a, in a smart city. So Rick, you know, one thing I was looking at is uh, the, the United Nations World Cities Report. And this is, this is back from 2018, this, this report. But it said that it projected that globally by 2030, there would be 706 cities with at least 1 million residents. And then there would be 43 mega cities, which they define as over 10 million residents. So these huge metropolises. And so when, you know, that said, when you mix in all the energy needs for connected devices and sensors and those environments, existing infrastructure and power grids, that sort of thing, how will cities need to respond to ensure their power grids are up to the task while also promoting sustainability and climate responsibility? So again, that's that's a really good question. I think it's not just energy we need to think about like that as well. Water is another good example. Mm-hmm. So, you know, over the same sort of time period, about 2 billion people worldwide will um, experience an increase in their standard of living to what, you know, in a mature Western economy, we would describe as a middle class standard of living. In that process, they're expected to begin consuming a lot more meat rather than fish and vegetables. So again, for their their diet to westernise effectively, takes around. If I remember right, it takes around about a hundred times more water than vegetables to grow on a calorie per calorie basis. We already use the vast majority of the world's world's managed fresh water to create the food that we create today. I can't remember the numbers, but I ran them once. And if you if you do if you don't drastically change the way we do things all of those sums end up in us needing 130 percent of the world's water by 2050 that's clearly not going to happen and actually Mm -hmm. as climate change causes sea levels to rise we're going to have less fresh water in the future than we've got now so i I think whether it's water or energy or anything like this that the first thing is we we just cannot engineer our way out of the trend of global urbanization and the climate situation we're in it's just got not going to work we have to think about doing things differently um, and again, I think you know, it's been widely remarked on that um, COVID has had a significant temporary impact on our climate emissions. And, you know, I, I think it's worth exploring this. You know, there's there's a lot of people have worked remotely for the first time. You know, for, for me, this is nothing new. Um, I joined a tech company in the 1990s as a pre-university student. We already had global instant messaging. And I got in trouble once for using the whole of the company's mainframe for running a prototype Facebook um, for all of us. <laughs> Um, I'm clearly a better techie than I am a businessman because I'm not currently one of the richest people in the world. <laughs> so, you know, this stuff's been possible for a long time. And, you know, I, I used to have a team. I used to live in Birmingham, UK. Most of my team work, are living and working in Hampshire, some in Spain, some in France. One of my bosses was in Winchester. The other one was in Pittsburgh. Um, worked remotely like that for something like 70% of my time in that role. 
all absolutely fine. Um, so, so what we're doing now, a lot of us have done it because we've had to. It's been possible for a long, long time. Um, I've also read some commentators saying that um, you know this is only working because we are consuming the social capital that we've previously built up in working together face to face. Well, you know, I joined Jacobs whilst we were in lockdown. I've met six people out of the fifty-five thousand people who work here remotely. Um, three of the people who interviewed me, an old university friend, and a couple of people I knew from previous jobs. You know, I've built hundreds of new relationships, including the ones that led to me being asked to take part in this podcast i've won new business with new clients i'm struggling to see the social capital i've consumed in the process you know i've I've built it while i've been here you know i I want to recognize there are many people for whom this doesn't work you know people who don't have connectivity Mm. don't have the devices they don't have the space at home there are some vulnerable people and vulnerable children for whom actually home is not the safest place and the fact that they haven't been able to go to school for many months is a really scary problem so Mm. you know i'm not for a moment saying that we should just happily pretend we can do everything this way we clearly can't but what we should look at we can obviously do things in very very different ways than we had got used to doing before and I think it's really important we do this the figure in all of this that scares me the most is um, we've seen probably a five percent reduction in carbon emissions as a temporary reduction due to the COVID lockdown and in so doing we have decimated the world's economy right goodness knows how many millions of people have lost their jobs lost lives you know mm-hmm. um, that's scary enough. The really scary bit is if we're going to hit net zero by 2050 and have a hope of limiting global temperature rises to what we need them to be, we have to achieve a permanent 5% reduction every year from now to 2050. And we somehow have to do it without decimating the economy and without having that sort of impact on so many lives. So there's a really big concerning challenge for us there so so part of it is obviously thinking about you know how do we improve generation of energy how do we improve the use of renewables how do we make our infrastructure run more efficiently so that we get the same outputs for for less energy etc but part of it has to be doing things in different ways Um, and here i think the sort of relationship between the physical and the digital is is really interesting and i'll also say you know we're face-to-face people um you know i don't want to spend my life remote from everyone but i don't necessarily want to spend it commuting in and out of london all the time like i've tended to do in the past couple of jobs that, that i've had it takes hours every day it consumes a huge amount of energy it means i don't get to spend time with my family you know there's a really interesting idea of a 15 minute city gaining a lot of credence at the moment the mayor of paris has talked about it um the academy of urbanism and the urban design group are having a joint con- conference around this idea later in the year what is that that, this 15 minute city yeah everything that you usually need is within a 15 mile uh, sorry a 15 minute walk or cycle ride from where you live you know Mm -hmm. your usual place of employment where Mm -hmm. you socialize the shops that you use etc so it's a very different way of of thinking about how a city might be organized I think one of the things is technology has a role in making that happen there's there's a great startup based out of Birmingham who I'd I'd love to mention by name but probably shouldn't but um, they're they're a tool sharing service so they use the same sort of peer-to-peer platform technology that lots of businesses do but their thing is if you need a tool to do a job in your home like putting up a shelf don't get in your car and drive to an out-of-town shop and buy one find Mm -hmm. a near neighbor who's got one they're not using you can walk around and borrow it and i love it on so many levels you know it creates reuse it promotes walking and cycling over getting in your car 
it promotes sustainability, it creates local social interactions, and, and best of all, you just couldn't have done it before the internet. I couldn't telephone a thousand near neighbours to find out if I can borrow a drill from them. I can search a thousand near neighbours online really easy. So I, I think it's services like that and design thinking like that around cities that we need to embrace. And, you know, it, it, it struck me that, you know, the cities that we we inhabit today you know before they were trampled all over by the internal combustion engine they were shaped by steam engines that made it possible to power lifts that made it possible to use tall buildings you know surely we've had some other technologies we can use to rethink the places that we live and work since those days Mm -hmm. yeah no for sure and i i had had a conversation with uh professor michael keith from oxford uh in an earlier podcast and he uh, he's with their uh, future cities program, and he he talked about that you know about this reliance on designs that are outdated and outmoded you know just because that was how we built cities in the past doesn't mean that's how we should be building them in the future. With that, I want to I want to thank you, Lonnie and Rick, for sharing your insights today. This is a very fascinating uh, conversation, and uh, I really appreciate both of you. So thank you so much. Thank you, Paul, and it's great to be able to do this together, Rick. Yeah, and you, Lani, real pleasure to have met you. And Paul, thank you for the opportunity, yeah. Absolutely. Thanks.